HCC Connect is an initiative of Core to Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Bayer. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts, academic institution, or the rest of the HCC Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core to Ed website. Hello, everyone. On behalf of HCC Connect, I want to welcome you to this podcast on systemic treatment in hepatocellular carcinoma, summarizing key data presented and discussed at ILCA and ESMO 2022. My name is Matthias Pinter. I am a hepatologist at the Medical University of Vienna. And today I am joined by Jeroen de Cavell from Belgium. Maybe you want to say a few words about yourself. Hi, uh, good day, everybody. My name is Irun de Kervel. I'm a GI oncologist here in Uzet Leuven in Belgium, focusing on all kinds of GI tumors, but in research mainly on HTC. I'm really happy that we can discuss together with you the results of the upcoming data in this field. Yeah, so as you know, there have been some uh, new presentations of IO therapies over the last couple of months. And at this year's ILCA meeting, the ILCA committee proposed a new treatment algorithm based on these uh, recent presentations of the three trials. And according to their draft, atesolizumab and bevacizumab, as well as the combination of duvalumab and tremolimumab, uh, represent the recommended first choices in first line. And alternative options in frontline include the well-known TKIs, lenvatinib, as well as sorafenib. And they also included a pdl one targeted monotherapy duvalumab, which showed non-inferiority versus sorafenib in the Himalaya trial, which was presented earlier this year at ASCO-GI. Now, the combination of camrelizumab, a PD-1 inhibitor, plus rivosuranib, a TKI, as well as uh, tisalizumab, a PD-1-targeted monotherapy, were also added as first options in first line. But this recommendation, however, was based on the press release reporting superiority over sorafenib for the combination regimen and non-inferiority for tisalizumab monotherapy. Now, the respective results of both trials were disclosed only later on at ASMO, and we will discuss these results shortly. In second line, after sorafenib, they recommend regorafenib, carbosantinib, ramosirumab, as well as pembrolizumab, which all have proven efficacy in uh, sorafenib pretreated patients. As you know, we have high-level evidence as we have positive phase three trials for these agents. But keep in mind that for pembrolizumab, the global trial was negative, but a second trial, a second phase three trial conducted in Asian countries finally reached its uh, primary endpoint. Now, Sequencing after prior IO therapy, which is now the standard of care in systemic frontline treatment and sequencing after lenvatinib is less clear because we do not have any uh, data from phase three trials here. And therefore the ILCA committee, as well as other associations like ESMO recommend more or less all approved TKIs as well as ramosirumab as per local availability. But obviously uh, the level of evidence for this recommendation is low. May I ask you, what is your standard of care uh, at your institution? What is your preferred option in frontline? 
Thank you for the question. I mean, what you just said, it all sounds very complex. We have so many agents right now. I think it's really important that we keep ourselves reminding where we come from. We come from a TKI era, of course, the first systemic treatment option in advanced HCC. And we have had the TKIs now for, for many years. And then in a second time, uh, there was the immunotherapy that was coming first in monotherapy. And we know there's a subset of patients with HEC that responds to immunotherapy, but it's a small subset. And in trials with all comers, they just were not positive. And then, of course, now we are in the era of the combination treatments with immunotherapy and TKIs or VGF antibodies. And in this new era, of course, we have to look which treatments showed superiority in terms of overall survival compared to the standard of care compared to the TKIs. And the TKIs, of course, mainly is serafinib in most of the trials. And then we look at atezolizumab bevacizumab, which showed in the IMBRAVE 150 trial a clear overall survival benefit. So for me, without any contraindications, and this is, of course, really important, it remains a question of good patient selection. Without any contraindications, atezolizumab bevacizumab is the standard of care. There's another combination treatment that showed superiority in terms of overall survival, however, not yet approved by the EMA yet. And that's, the, of course, the stride regimen, one cycle of trimelimumab, followed by uh, durvalumab, the PDO one inhibitor, every four weeks. And this is a good alternative option, again, showing superiority in terms of overall survival for those patients, mainly that have, for example, contraindications for atezolizumab, bevacizumab. And then we still have the TKIs. Uh, the TKIs, uh, we know really well, we have learned to use them over the years, and they're still in terms of patient profile, uh, a proportion of patients that is best helped with a TKI in first line. So uh, I think for me, these are the options Atezolizumab bevacid for most of the patients, Dervalumab, Tremilimumab for a selected number, as well as TKIs for patients that cannot have immunotherapy. So I couldn't agree more. Atezolizumab bevacizumab is certainly also the reference standard here uh, in Austria as well. But you mentioned contraindications for the combination mm -hmm. Atezolizumab and bevacizumab. And that was also discussed uh, during a session at the ILCA meeting. Maybe you want to talk about certain uh, contraindications where you may prefer other treatment options in first line. In patients with liver cirrhosis, of course, we're always very concerned about bleeding risk. And in the I Am Brave trial, every patient had to have an EGD, an endoscopy, to exclude esophageal varices. And if there were varices, of course, they had to be treated along local standards. And this is still very important in clinical practice. If you put these precautions in place, then the risk of bleeding is low. However, there are still some patients with liver cirrhosis where the bleeding risk is uncontrolled and where we would rather not give an anti-VGF antibody like bevacizumab. So these are patients that preferably get the stride regimen, also patients with uncontrolled cardiovascular risk, or I remember some patients with wounds that would not heal. Of course, these patients, they're not good candidates for bevacizumab and they're the Durvatrimi combination uh, is certainly an option. And then, of course, we look also at the IO component of the combination, the atezolizumab. Some patients cannot get immunotherapy, at least uh, patients with autoimmunity, and then I would say rather uncontrolled autoimmunity, which means they're actively treated for, for example, autoimmune hepatitis with steroids or other immunosuppressants. These patients 
are not such good candidates for immunotherapy. And of course, the patients with HCC recurrence post-liver transplantation, for example. So we know that immunotherapy induces rejection in a majority of patients after solid organ transplantation. You can discuss in, in the setting, for example, of a clinical trial, whether after kidney transplantation, it's, of course, weighing of benefit and risk because you always have the dialysis as a backup option. But for liver transplantation, and this is not the case. And of course, uh, fulminant rejection will, in fact, lead to a more poor outcome for these patients. So we really have to be careful there. I would say autoimmunity, if the autoimmunity is controlled, if this patient has, for example, a history of Crohn's disease, but it's untreated, if this patient has uh, rheumatoid arthritis uh, very well under control, you might consider an IO combination with only one component of immunotherapy, such as PDL1 inhibitor. But probably there, the double combination, durvalumab, trimelimumab, could lead to more uh, flares of autoimmune disease, as we have seen also in the Himalaya trial, where the need for steroids in that combination are much higher than in the arm with uh, durvalumab monotherapy. Yeah, right. I couldn't agree more. So basically, to summarize that, contraindications for bevacizumab basically include uh, uncontrolled hypertension. It includes uh, recent cardiovascular events, as well as patients who have a high bleeding risk, for example, recurrent bleeding, despite optimal management of varices. And for iotherapy, the most important contraindications include solid organ transplantation and severe autoimmune diseases uh, that may be life-threatening if uh, reactivated. So I've mentioned briefly before that at the ESMO meeting, three phase three trials were presented that tested new IO combinations or IO monotherapies in HCC. All of these trials were uh, front-run trials, so they were testing these agents in systemic treatment naive patients. And I think it's, it's time now to discuss uh, these studies in more detail. The first study that was presenting was the so-called LEAP-002 study, which tested the combination of lenvatinib plus pembrolizumab versus lenvatinib plus placebo. So it was a double-blind study, and it included only, as I mentioned before, in systemic treatment naive patients that had well-preserved liver function and a good performance status. And one of the main exclusion criteria was invasion of the main portal vein. The study was eagerly evaded. The phase 1b trial looked pretty good. That tested this combination, showed a response rate of almost 50%, uh, so high expectations. But unfortunately, the LEAP002 study uh, was a negative one. Uh, the study failed to reach uh, pre-specified thresholds for superiority for both primary endpoints of all survival and progression-free survival. And the certainly unexpected exceptional performance of the lenvatinib plus placebo arm was probably the main reason for the failure of this trial, showing a median overall survival that was uh, probably the longest ever recorded for a TKI in HCC. Maybe you want to present the second study that tested the combination of cambrilisumab plus rivocerinib, and then we may discuss uh, the differences between those trials and possible reasons for the different outcomes of these trials. 
Thank you. Indeed, we saw three phase three trials and the, and the trial, the late-breaking abstract 35 at ESMO was one testing the combination of a PD-1 inhibitor, camrelizumab, uh, with a TKI, which formerly was named apatinib, now rivoceranib, a TKI of which we do not know, I would say, the potency in monotherapy uh, right now in a good a large phase three trial. So it's a little bit of a question mark what this TKI would give together with the PD-1 inhibitor. And the control arm was their standard of care. Again, sorafenib, so not lemvatinib like in the LEAP002, but uh, sorafenib. And again, first-line treatment, unresectable HCC. So the classic inclusion criteria that we see in all the phase three trials, front-line treatment. Uh, here, the uh, invasion of the main portal branch was allowed as an inclusion criteria. And this trial, in fact, was a positive trial, positive in terms of overall survival, the primary endpoint, which was clearly uh, longer with the combination PD-1 and uh, rivoceranib compared to uh, sorafenib. So um, this is, in fact, now the only trial that we have that showed a benefit in overall survival frontline combination PD-1 inhibition and the TKI. So as the uh, LEAP002 uh, was negative and also uh, the COSMIC 312, which was presented last year, 2021, which was comparing atezolizumab and cabozantinib, another TKI versus serafinib. As you know, this trial was positive for its primary endpoint progression-free survival, but did not meet uh, superiority in terms of overall survival, the most clinically relevant endpoint. So this is really something that is new now and combination of PD-1 inhibition and a TKI. I have to emphasize that this trial was mainly run in Asian countries. And of course, this is a very uh, specific population which might differ from uh, the Western population in terms of etiology, for example, of HEC, which is, of course, more viral. And then also the second thing I should mention about this trial is the safety data. Always interesting if you combine a immunotherapy with a TKI, a TKI of which we expect might be a little bit more toxic than a VGF antibody. And indeed, here also uh, we saw in the interventional arm, we saw quite a high number of grade three to four adverse events. So this is really something we have to look into more deeply, especially as apatinib or rivoceranib. Uh, this TKI is a little bit less well known in the community. Yeah. So you mentioned that there were some differences between both trials. Uh, one of the main differences was probably the fact that the um, Rebo trial mainly recruited patients from Asian countries. Uh, while the LEAP trial was uh, well balanced uh, in terms of geographical distribution of patients. So that was one of the main differences, but there were uh, several other ones. Uh, we have mentioned that uh, the inclusion and exclusion criteria are somewhat different. Uh, when we look at the study design, the LEAP uh, was a double-blind st study, while CAMREVO was an open-label trial. So that it may explain uh, a very low rate of constant uh, withdrawals in the lenvatinib placebo arm of the LEAP study compared to the relatively high rate in the sorafenib arm of the CAMRIVO trial. So that was one, one of the differences between both studies and uh, certainly the geographical uh, distribution of patients. You mentioned uh, that Asian patients mainly suffer from viral uh, underlying liver disease etiologies especially hepatitis B is very common in, in Asian countries. And we know from this trial and from subgroup analysis of this trial and other phase three trials, that especially the HPV population seems to, to benefit uh, from IO uh, therapy. And that is also supported uh, 
by the fact that pembrolizumab in second line failed in the global phase three trial, but not in the Asian trial. And the Chinese subgroup of the IMBRAVE 150 also showed better outcomes than the overall cohort. So it seems that the Asian population does somewhat better, and that may have something to do with the underlying liver disease etiology, but that certainly deserves further research. What we also have to acknowledge here is, however, that the IO arms in, in the LEAP trial and the CAMREVO trial uh, showed quite uh, similar outcomes in terms of efficacy, only the control arm uh, performed differently. And therefore, I again believe that the main reason for the failure of the LEAP trial was the outstanding performance of uh, the lenbatinib control arm. What is your take on that? Of course, it's unfortunate that that's a negative trial. And the LEAP002, we had uh, put our hopes uh, to it, uh, to have an extra option in first line. But I still think we can learn a lot from negative trials. It's indeed the case that the fact that the trial would be positive or negative, it does not depend only on the efficacy of the drug or the drug combination. There's so much more that plays a role here. It's the, the inclusion criteria, so the population in the trial. It's the control arm, the choice of the control arm. It's the statistical design here with the LEAP002 with the co-primary endpoint. It's also the post-protocol treatments. And if we look at the LEAP002 trial, of course, the question is, Lenvatinib arm performed extraordinarily well, but why was that the case? It's something that we also see maybe to a lesser extent, although not really in the control arms with serafinib. As you know, and uh, back in the days, the SHARP trial showed a modest improvement in overall survival with serafinib. But if you look at the performance of the serafinib control arm in all those phase three trials where serafinib was controlled, then you can see that at least a 50% increase in overall survival has been noted also with serafinib. So this is not new. With lenvatinib, we have seen this a little bit less, but of course, this is due to the fact that lenvatinib was not frequently used as control arm in phase three trials. So the difference is shocking almost in comparison with the REFLECT trial, but might be not so surprising if we look at the, the evolution that serafinib has gone through. Also, we have to look at post-progression treatments. And there we see, of course, that, that about 50% of uh, patients, about half of patients in the lenvatinib arm of the LEAP002 got another treatment and about one in four got, in fact, immunotherapy as a second line. But these numbers compare very well to the I Am Brave trial, for example. And so it's not really that easy to just put it all onto the fact that this was a sequencing trial where lenvatinib in the control arm was used in first line for those patients, and then they got uh, IO immunotherapy in the second line. No, this is not the case for all the patients. That does not explain all the differences, but it, it might uh, contribute. And then the question is, yes, what is the ideal partner for immunotherapy? We always thought that, that TKIs would be better in partnering with, with immunotherapy because they have more mechanisms of action. They're not only inhibiting VGF receptor, but they also inhibit other kinases. And of course, the toxicity profile is a downside of that. But we thought maybe this might also increase the potency of, of immunotherapy. But maybe we have to come back a little bit from that. We have now two trials that show a very nice survival benefit with bifacizumab. It's the I Am Brave 150, but let's not forget the Orient 32 trial, which was also a combination of PD-1 inhibition Cintilimab with uh, bifacizumab biosimilar. And also there we saw the, the same effect. So anti-VGF antibody seems to synergize. We're not sure yet, but it seems to synergize maybe a little bit more than certain uh, TKIs. So this is, this is also something that we need to take into account and we need further 
preclinical and translational uh, research on. And I know I talked about the trial design, the co-primary endpoint here in the LEAP002. Of course, you have to split the alpha, as we say, and statistically, that means that, of course, the, the, the threshold to be statistically significant is higher for both endpoints, overall survival and progression-free survival. And this also might, of course, contribute to the statistical result of this trial, which was, in fact, negative. So what we've learned over the couple of months is that it seems that, that it is the combination treatment that is effective in HCC. It's the combination of IO therapy and, and especially uh, anti-BGF uh, treatments. Uh, we have now a couple of positive phase three trials here. You mentioned IMBRIEF 150, the Orient trial, and now uh, the CAMREVO uh, trial. So we have three phase uh, three trials that showed improvements versus uh, TKIs uh, for these combinations. While you mentioned that in the beginning, PD-1 targeted monotherapy was not that impressive in phase three trials in HCC so far, even though a proportion of patients still responds and shows uh, very good long-term outcomes uh, with PD-1 monotherapy. Uh, now, uh, at ASMO, uh, a third phase three trial was presented, the Rationale 301 a trial, which tested another PD-1 uh, monotherapy versus sorafenib as a first-line treatment and compared tisalizumab versus sorafenib in, in systemic treatment naive patients with advanced stage HCC. And uh, tisalizumab finally demonstrated non-inferiority regarding OS versus sorafenib, but it did not meet a criteria for superiority regarding other secondary endpoints like uh, response rate and adverse events. Tisalizumab showed similar overall response rates and toxicity profiles that were reported for other PD-1 targeted monotherapies in HCC so far. However, uh, and that is something that is important here, uh, similarly to the CAMREVO trial, the majority of patients again came from Asia and Japan and only around one uh, fourth came from the EU and US. And that certainly uh, limits, in my opinion, their generalizability of the results. How do you interpret this uh, new data on another uh, PD-1 target monotherapy? Well, it's interesting to have confirmation, but it is that it is. I think it's a confirmation of what we already knew. There is indeed that signal of efficacy of this monotherapy in HCC, but it's not large enough to result really in a superiority in terms of overall survival in frontline. Their volume up also showed its non-inferiority in the Himalaya trial, so monotherapy with PDL1 inhibition, and now the trial with Tislilizumab, the Rationale 301, confirms in fact this finding. And for me, it's really puzzling. I really struggle, Matthias, to find a good place, a good patient profile to match with these monotherapies, because of course we have atezolizumab, bevacizumab, which is a monotherapy. Well, it's a combination, but of course one type of checkpoint inhibitor. And there, of course, this combination is contraindicated mostly for the bevacizumab toxicity. And then on the other hand, you have the stride regimen, the combination of durvalumab, trimelimumab, where of course patients with autoimmunity are a little bit more at risk for side effects. So I have two very good options with superiority. I don't really have a patient that I in mind right now that I think this, this would be really a good candidate for 
monotherapy because probably if they cannot get the turvatrimic combination, they can get the atezobev combination and the other way around. So there I, I struggle still a little bit. I think these data are very good to know and especially in the future if we would be able to really select those patients based on biomarkers that have these excellent outcomes with monotherapy pd1 or pd1 inhibition well of course these data will come in hand we will know a lot about efficacy and toxicity from these trials and we can use maybe a lesser intense regimen yeah i i couldn't agree more i don't see a major role for PD-1 targeted monotherapy in frontline, because as you mentioned, we have combination treatments that have shown higher efficacy. They have shown superiority uh, versus control arm. So I don't see a, a large impact of, of these PD-1 monotherapies in frontline as well. Now, with these new treatments, with these new phase three trials that have presented at ESMO, uh, we have to uh, discuss how we should integrate all those new treatments uh, in the treatment algorithm of HCC. I mentioned before, uh, there was a, a discussion and a presentation at ILCA where these new treatments were uh, integrated in the treatment algorithm. Certainly, the lib 2 study, which was a negative study, won't change clinical practice. But I think what the study demonstrated is that lenvatinib is very active and probably the TKI with the highest activity in HCC but again, I do not see a significant role for the combination treatment in HCC. Now, what do you think about uh, the CAMREVO trial? Do you think uh, that is uh, something that will become a main first-line option, uh, probably in, in Asia, right? But uh, do you think it, it will become a, a main option in, in Western countries? I think it's a potent combination, but I think the trial was not designed that way that it will lead to approval here, for example, in Europe, we'll have to see. And then, of course, I have a little bit questions about the tolerability of the regimen. I don't know it, so it's, it's difficult to estimate that. Uh, but of course, if you have a combination like atezolizumab, bevacizumab with very similar profile in terms of patients that are legible, then, of course, this toxicity also should be kept in mind. Right, I agree. So less than 20% of the patients uh, came from non-Asian countries. That is a, a limitation of this study. And you mentioned toxicity uh, that was also quite high. And given that we have atezolizumab and bevacizumab, which is equally effective, but has less toxicity, or at least it's always hard to do these uh, cross-study comparisons, but still I think the tolerability of atezolizumab is better. Therefore, I think it, it may become a standard a treatment in Asian countries in first line, but I don't see uh, a main role for, for this combination in Western countries. Mm -hmm. And so you see that indeed the management of uh, HCC, which was already quite different in the West compared to the East, will maybe further drift apart. So you also have, for example, the hepatic arterial infusion. We did not talk about that, but they have a huge experience on that in, for example, China and very nice results. And this is something in the West we do not use. So, so yeah, it's, it's really a trend that we're seeing right now, a different patient population and also a different treatment algorithm, uh, East versus West. That's right. We have discussed that, but just to mention it again, it is Lelisumab as well, mainly included patient formation countries. So I also do not see a main role for this treatment in Western countries, especially since we have Duvalumab, which yeah. showed non-inferiority versus serafinib in the Himalaya trial. 
And this study was better balanced in terms of geographical distribution of patients included. So the question now, Matthias, is a little bit for the future. How do we continue? What are the next steps to do in this very, very innovative field that HCC is? What do you think? Where should our focus be right now? Well, I think when you get phase three trials that are currently ongoing, we will have to adopt immunotherapy probably in earlier stages of the disease, in, in early stage HCC as an adjuvant treatment after resection and, and local ablation. There are a couple of studies that are investigating this approach, and hopefully we have data from phase three trials uh, within the next few months. And the other group that may benefit from immunotherapies is the intermediate stage where TACE is the standard of care. But we have had studies with three trials that tested the combination of TACE plus systemic therapy. But these trials, most of them were negative. We had some uh, interesting studies like the tactics trial that defined progression a, a bit differently. And this trial indeed showed an improvement in progression-free survival. Uh, but failed to show superiority in terms of overall survival. So there is some, some signs of efficacy for the combination of taste plus systemic therapy, but currently we do not have any validated phase three trials that really support the use of this combination. There are several phase three trials ongoing that are testing a taste plus IO therapy. And again, hopefully we will have uh, data soon uh, because I think that is some interesting combinations uh, that are tested right now, especially the concept behind combining uh, taste plus immunotherapy is a very good one because by uh, inducing tumor necrosis uh, through taste, uh, you have a high antigen load that leads to T cell priming in the lymph nodes. And with immunotherapy, you can enhance this immune response and probably induce higher response rates than with uh, taste alone. So a good concept. And I think uh, we will have data on IO therapy in these earlier stages soon. Mm -hmm. Let me just also finish by making a case for the little bit forgotten populations within HCC. I think the first ones are the patients with the CHAPUB uh, liver disease, uh, because they're always excluded from the clinical trials. And maybe it's time now with more potent drugs that we specifically design a trial that is directed to those patients to see whether we can also improve their survival and whether the toxicity, of course, is acceptable. I know we have some rebuild data, it's very nice, but we do not have any uh, prospective randomized data. And this is, I think, an unmet need. And the second is, of course, right now we are seeing a benefit, I think, in 40 to 50% of HCC patients treated with immunotherapy combinations, about 20 25% have a response and some more have, have a, a quite durable, uh, stable disease. But then there is still this, this very uh, significant proportion of patients that are currently underserved with the combinations. And we urgently need new strategies, of course, new targets and new mechanisms to target their disease as well. So I think this is really something uh, for the future. Thank you, Jeroen. Now it is time to close this discussion. I really enjoyed our conversation. On behalf of HEC Connect, I want to thank you all for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you and bye. This HCC Connect podcast was brought to you by CoreToEd Independent Medical Education. Please visit coretoed.com for more information.